our program. I'm Edna Session, director of the center. Uh, next, uh, on not next week, the week after, the February 21st, we are going to show in the morning the documentary Particle Fever, and then in the afternoon we are going to have a roundtable with the title The Quest. Uh, the participants of that are Sarah Damaro, uh, Alberto Manguel, Gene Strauss, and uh, Mark Levinson. Uh, then on um, March 7th, we have a roundtable on consciousness, and uh, David Chalmers from NYU, Carl Friston from the University College London, Gabrielle Jackson from Stony Brook, Pete Hart from Princeton, Ken Paller from Northwestern, and Nicholas Schiff from Cornell who will be the participants of that. Uh, today's roundtable is on the sublime experience, and uh, I will uh, read you briefly uh, the bios of the participants. Uh, they are available on the website if you want to dig deeper into it. Uh, Paul Fry, sitting there, is the William Lampson Professor of English at Yale. He was educated at UC Berkeley and Harvard. His seven books and numerous articles covered many fields, the history of lyric, British romanticism, the history of criticism, the history of aesthetics, philosophy and literature, recent literary theory, and literature and the visual arts. Uh, I will stop there. That's about a quarter of what I have. James Judd, who is sitting here, is music director of the Israel Symphony and the Little Orchestra Society in New York. Uh, his previous directorship included the New Zealand Symphony, the Orchestre Nationale de Lille, Adelaide Symphony, and the Philharmonic Symphony. He's been a regular guest conductor at many orchestras around the globe, and he leads annual tour of Asia and the Asian Youth Society. And as an opera conductor, he's led the English National Opera, Glendonborn, and Florida Grand Opera. And again, I'll stop all the other major achievements. Alan Richardson, who is sitting there, is professor of English at Boston College. He holds degrees in English from Princeton University and Harvard University. A romanticist by training, he has published extensively on the literature and culture of the British Romantic era, especially in relation to issues of gender, childhood and education, race and colonialism, and scientific psychology. He's devoted his research more recently on the intersections between literary studies and the sciences of mind and brain. And finally, Sandra Shapshay is has her BA in intellectual history from Penn, from University of Pennsylvania, and her PhD from, in philosophy from Columbia University. She's an associate professor of philosophy at Indiana University. And her interests center on the 19th century German philosophy, especially Kant and Schopenhauer, as well as contemporary aesthetics and ethics. Uh, we had a fifth participant, Amir Excel, but unfortunately, he fell yesterday on ice in Boston and broke his forearm, so he won't be with us. Thank you.
Uh, well, I thought that perhaps I, I could get us started and in good philosophical fashion, uh, that I would ask a definitional question of everyone. Uh, what is sublime experience or what is a sublime experience? Well, I'm, I'm glad you asked it that mm -hmm. way because when I did my work on the sublime, it, it became clear to me that not everyone agrees that there is a sublime experience, but I do feel that there is one. So, so I like the way that your question is biased towards my position, if we have positions. Um, some people think that the sublime is just a language game, what Wittgenstein would call a language game, a way of talking about a certain class of experiences that we decide to label that way, a, a rhetorical trope. Um, but most sublime theorists up to the 20th century clearly thought there was an experience of the sublime and, and something that you could feel before there was ever a word for it. And, and I guess that that's what I feel, just to start with, that it is an experience. And, and it's an experience of, um, for me, in brief, when you realize palpably, when you realize viscerally um, in your body as well as it, with all of your acting mind, that the world is greater than you have ever supposed, than you can take in with your, with your um, senses and, and with your cognition. It's uh, an experience that, that's both cognitive and emotional and very powerful. And my guess is that many people in this room feel that they have had such an experience. I, I know that I have. I, too, think that there is certainly a sublime experience I think that uh, the terms for it have varied in history, and that the sublime experience as the response initially in a state of fear, then in a state of recovery, and in a certain sense after that, a state of possession, that is to say possession of the experience, but at the same time possibly being possessed by the experience, uh, I think flourishes particularly in the 18th century. Uh, the, that, the term sublime uh, applies most recognizably to that experience then. Uh, and, the, and that as one moves into the 19th century, partly owing to Kant's third critique, but perhaps not uh, as a, so much as a matter of influence as you know, the, the zeitgeist or whatever. Uh, in my own view, the experience or becoming aware of the imagination, that is to say, an internal faculty that one is alerted to by the experience of something almost incommensurable in the external world, uh, replaces the sublime, and that the word sublime, as it's used in the Romantic period, becomes a little more casual. Sometimes it even means chemical sublimation, as when Byron calls a rascal rapscallion of a lawyer the sublime of rascals. Uh, that is, that's, that's, that's a chemical term, <laughs> the pure distillation of rascals. Uh, and then I think that, that since then, and this is something, I'm going to stop, and something we need to talk about more, I think that since then, the experience itself has become more unstable. In Freud, I think that, that a comparable sort of experience 
is the uncanny, and that's something we might want to come back to as well. Uh, and there are other aesthetic categories as described in the 20th and 21st century that in various ways maybe encroach on what we mean by the sublime without taking away the fact that there is such an experience. So I've gone on too much. Well, I think from my experience as a musician, I would venture to suggest, is that me? It seems to me that I'm growling and I don't mean to. Uh, that perhaps the sublime is easier, easiest to be accessed through music. That I remember my experiences as a very small child, not being aware of particularly what I was listening to, some great works of music, great choral works, great Bach. Then later realizing that that music had transported me in, in a special way that right up to now I'm trying to analyze and understand. Um, but I think that through great music, and I think we could all agree on certain pieces of great music, we can find the sublime, access the sublime. Well, um, now you have to answer. Well, I, know, I know I have to answer my own question. <laughs> um, I, I, I think um, I, I also agree that there is such a thing as sublime experience in that. It, it has a certain character to it that makes it distinctive. Um, I also think that um, the, the term sublime, as, as you allude to, Paul, uh, has become stretched in, in various ways to sort of take on perhaps um, an experience of horror or an uncanny. And, and actually, um, uh, the art, one of the art critics for The New Yorker whose last name I can't pronounce very well. Um, Sheldon. That's it, uh, Peter Sheldon. Uh, said in, in um, response to uh, an exhibit of works by um, Caspar David Friedrich that, um, that the sublime doesn't mean anything today, that it's been stretched too, too far. And so one of the things that I've actually been working on in contemporary aesthetics is to, to come up with some um, some sense of, of the concept of the, of the sublime, of a sublime response that has a certain shape to it and, and doesn't fall uh, victim to Sheldahl's charge that it, uh, I think he said something like, it's uh, the sublime has had 200 years to start meaning something coherent and it has failed. So, but I, but I would say that there really is um, a category, a set of category that, um, that, that makes sense, that is kind of a mixed uh, pleasurable, painful experience, um, and uh, in the 18th century, when the when the category was um, came to be significantly theorized, it was seen as the kind of the the other pole of beauty. So beauty was uh, seen as largely, you know, very pleasurable, tranquil experience, often of smooth or polished, um, formed, beautiful formed objects, and the sublime was seen as a kind of a, a more painful, tumultuous um, experience of often formless or uh, vast, overwhelming kinds of, of uh, paradigmatically natural um, objects or scenes. But, uh, but it seems to me that there still is a kind of experience of being overwhelmed that is both, it's painful and it's also pleasurable that, um, that we still feel today that answers to the, to the concept of sublime. 
I, if, if I could respond to where you started, Sandra, I don't think it's, it's such a concern that terms and concepts get stretched out because that's what we do, right, as language users. We, we try them out in new contexts and we stretch them out as long as, it's not really a problem as long as we have central examples. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so we can talk about, you know, a, a, an examining table and we can talk about, you know, a, a massage table, but we still know that, you know, what a table is. And this is our central example, is something like this. So, so if we have a, you know, if everybody had a paradigmatic example of the sublime experience, that might help us. Obviously, uh, James has already given us his. It's listening to what Mahler's ninth or Beethoven's ninth, and yes, and you know, the moment when the audience comes to tears. Uh, um, for me, it would be being really high up in the mountains, you know, and being able to see range after range after range of mountains all around me and be completely unable to take it all in and yet, you know, sort of in awe of, of this. You know, I, I, I still really like the natural sublime. Mm. What, do you have a, a central example? Paul, or is, oh, or? I, I would be perfectly happy with yours. And it's interesting, of course, that in the development of landscape painting, the Dutch in particular uh, specialized in extended prospects that were just like that, painted from uh, a, a high angle so that you saw against the across the flat country of Holland through innumerable villages and spires becoming smaller and smaller in the distance and finally arriving at what might be the sea but is so far away that it's difficult to tell. Uh, I, I certainly agree that that's, that that's a central experience of the natural sublime on the supposition that the sublime is in the world and not in our head. Uh, I, I think that already uh, we're coming to the point where the question of whether the sublime is bounded, though very large, or boundless uh, it already becomes a matter of interest because to speak of, of the shape of the sublime experience I think is right. The experience itself does have a shape but the sublime, the catalyst, uh, that which gives rise to the experience uh, is arguably, and it depends who you listen to, either almost infinite, but still finite, that is to say, an object in the external world, or uh, something that we think or constitute in our minds as the infinite, because of course we don't know the infinite in the external world. And this is, this is one of the controversies about the sublime. Uh, and, uh, it's, and it's very interesting that even people who modern critics and, and, and thinkers who theorize about the sublime uh, seem not all to get altogether to agree on it. There's a book by Stephen Knapp, a, a professor at Berkeley, called Personification and the Sublime that supposes sublime objects, including supernatural beings, even human beings, uh, to have a finite outline. We recognize them in the form of their personification, uh, a device or technique that we associate with allegory. So in some sense, we can see them clear clearly. And in that case, if you take Milton as your sublime literary text par excellence, you'd say, well, Satan is the sublime figure because Satan 
as a being that you can see, but you're mistaken if you think you know what the real extent of his magnitude is. And we can come back to that. I don't want to dwell over it for the moment. What I wanted to say for the moment was, if, on the other hand, you think of the, 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 the figures of sin and death in Milton, not so much Satan, but the figures of sin and death, you see that Milton's whole point about them is that they're shapeless, that, they're, that their magnitude is communicated as that which is boundless and has no form. So an underlying question for me in thinking about this, and it may have to do with the relation between the sublime and the sublime experience, is the question of whether the sublime, as it were, has a form. Well, can I follow through on that? You mentioned Beethoven. Let's think of a piece we all know, probably, the Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. And I, th and, and I mention this for a few reasons. You look at the score. I've had the manuscript or the notebook in my hands in a, from a library in Krakow. At the score of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, you see something incredibly structured and perfectly formed um, in the hands of a great interpreter. And I think the sublime in Beethoven's Nine needs a great interpreter. For example, Furtwängler, if you listen to the recordings of Furtwängler live of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, he transports this formal structure into something that at the end of his performance, his particular performance, it goes beyond the pain barrier in terms of tempo and in terms of spiritual ecstasy and takes us into something that's completely eternal, I think, and yet, Interestingly, I mean, Wagner talked a lot about, uh, about Beethoven. Furtwängler, the great uh, Wagner interpreter, Beethoven interpreter, uh, read much uh, or, or, or thought about his interpretations through the writings of Schopenhauer, for example, both Wagner and Furtwängler. And um, so what I think music needs is music is not in, on the piece of paper sublime. It needs great interpretation because Beethoven 9 can sound perfectly pedantic. <laughs> well, one, one thing that also might be helpful um, is, uh, is the distinction that, that Kant made in the third critique uh, between the mathematical and the dynamical sublime. So the mathematical sublime uh, deals with vast, formless objects or expanses, possibly expanses of time. And, uh, and the dynamical sublime is about great power and um, sort of overwhelming um, uh, uh, power or dominance. Oops. Uh, and so in some ways, you, one might think that um, an experience of a, of a, a particularly sublime uh, interpretation of, of uh, Beethoven's Ninth would, um, would trigger more the dynamical sort of sublime. Um, so that you know, one, one is experiencing a kind of uh, being overwhelmed by some, some kind of power or um, emotional expression. Um, and perhaps it's not, in that case, it's not uh, a kind of sublime that, that answers to the more mathematical vastness. That's interesting because there is a work by Stockhausen for three orchestras written in 1954 uh, which is incredibly complex because it's written on the 12-tone scale, but every dynamic is controlled by mathematics. Every note is controlled by mathematics. The instrumentation, three different orchestras placed around the hall. Very complicated for the conductor because 
uh, you have three conductors, each orchestra is playing at different tempos, but it's perfect mathematically, mathematically, and it's so, so satisfying. So that's probably an example of music that you can just look at as a trained musician and find the sublime mathematical purity. Go and listen to it if you don't know it. It's a, it's a challenging piece, but it's wonderful. Yeah, really wonderful. A pioneering thinker concerning the sublime uh, was a Greek uh, teacher of Roman youth preparing to enter into civic life somewhere between the first and the third century named Longinus. And he wrote uh, a treatise called uh, On the Sublime. And he distinguishes there in ways that aren't, that aren't, I think, fully analogous with Kant's mathematical and dynamic, but at the same time rather interesting. Uh, on the one hand, there's the sort of power expressed by the tearing apart of the fabric of language through rhetorical devices, uh, an opening of a gap or wound in ordinary discourse where somehow or another uh, what he calls visualization or the experience of something arresting or terrifying from the outside emerges. And on the other hand, he speaks also of a sublime experience that one has if one's an auditor of Demosthenes, being, as he put, oh, puts it, hit over the head again and again and again and again. In other words, with Demosthenes, it's a matter of sustaining the experience of being overwhelmed. In other sorts of rhetorical experience, it's a matter of a sudden tearing apart of the fabric of the experience, which he calls persuasion or uh, the coherence of an argument that can be very exciting and compel us because it is coherent. But at the same time, this sort of experience tears that apart, leaving a sudden rift or gap through which, as he puts it, the experience of the sublime floods. I, I um, just taught Longinus to my undergraduates. And one of the things that always interests me when, when I teach that piece is at the end of it, he starts this uh, discussion or picks up a discussion that he's had already with someone else about what kind of society fosters the sublime. So apparently, there are certain societies that foster more sublimity than others. And, and he wonders at first, you know, is it that democratic societies, and he's thinking of Athenian democracy, that's what fosters the sublime. But he says, no, what I really think is that, uh, you know, affluent societies like ours, where people get very interested in consumer goods, what we would call consumer goods, money, those, you know, people are so preoccupied with mean thoughts, with, uh, uh, with, with thoughts of things. Longinus says at the beginning of his treatise, anything that, that it's, you know, cool to despise can't be sublime. So it's cool to despise money, right? We all know that. It's cool to be above it. So that it can't be sublime. So a, a money society has much less sublimity than a uh, um, society that prizes genius and, you know, character. So I don't know. I, I don't know what people think of that. You know, if, if maybe that's the problem. Not that we've uh, defined the sublime too thinly, but that, you know, we're addicted to consumer goods. And you know we've seen too many ads that say, 
A Cigar is Sublime. <laughs> Do you, you remember that one? Was it Edie Adams that, that's... <laughs> you have to be a certain age to remember. Back when they could advertise cigars that way. Yeah. You know, is, it, is there anything to that? I, I think so, actually. I mean, um, I go back to Kant a lot. I think Kant had a, had a very nice way of understanding the sublime. And, and one of the key analyses that he gave uh, was that in, con in contrast to the beautiful, which is a kind of, for Kant, experience of purposiveness, of a sort of being at home in the world, uh, where things accommodate themselves to you, their forms are comprehensible, and um, one can sort of slip easily into a kind of tranquil, free play of the intellectual faculties in, in the beautiful. The sublime is, uh, is an experience of contra-purposiveness, where you, are not, you do not feel at home in the world, that where things are, um, are, are difficult, they challenge you, um, where the, the uh, paradigmatically for Kant, the environment is um, hostile in a way, either to our intellectual faculties, hostile to comprehension, or hostile to us existentially. So I do think the sublime, it does seem to be um, a kind of experience where um, one, is, one is being challenged in some way. So if things are too comfortable, right, if, if, if your environment has been made so comfortable through consumer goods, uh, you know, you're living, you're feeling pretty at home in the world uh, where the sublime is a, is a kind of, at least according to Kant, kind of feeling not quite at home, um, which leads one to, so that that's the painful aspect of it, the experience of a person's or human limits, uh, limits to our cognitive abilities and limits to our, um, to our, our, our very own existence or our own power. So you're rooting for more snow right now, is <laughs> you, Now you know who to blame. That's right. That's right. Yeah, it's true, though. I think you know here in New York, if we had uh, you know three feet of snow, we might have a greater chance of an actual experience of the sublime rather than. You know, some don't allow that the music of Mahler you mentioned earlier it can be sublime because Mahler is so earthbound with tragedy and with the personal battle, and so on. But I've always found that that um, repetition that you get in Mahler, sometimes of banality and of struggle, releases something just so moving and profound. And I was thinking, as, as you were all speaking, about um, a book I was just reading by a fantastic historian, Brian Moynihan, about the Leningrad Symphony of Shostakovich and about the, the uh, circumstances historically surrounding the siege of Leningrad. I mean, it's too horrific. But I do recommend the book, Siege and Symphony. And thinking about the Seventh Symphony of Shostakovich, I don't know whether any of you know, in the first movement, that is a prolonged, I say prolonged, 10 minutes of side drum, snare drum, just repeating this banal kind of threatening march. And through repetition, but this is another area, I suppose, of hypnotism, repetition, I'm not sure that does that lead to the sublime? But through this grotesque music that some people can't stand, frankly, they dismiss, the, many people dismiss the, the symphonies of Mahler, they can't take it, and dismiss Shostakovich. Uh, but for me, uh, that music, just through the pain and so on, really, really takes us somewhere uh, that the beauty of Mozart doesn't always do. Yeah. That, well, 
that's Demosthenes, I think, in, in the Longinian register. Uh, and the element of repetition is an aspect, just as sheer accretion or accumulation, of Kant's mathematical sublime as well. Uh, so, uh, and, and I do see uh, somehow a distinction between experiences, both sublime, one of which arises from repetition or accretion, and the other of which arises from, as I say, a kind of a blasting apart, which is momentary, is not sustained or repeated, but, it, but is momentary. I, I thought, by the way, that um, so if, through, if only for truth and advertising, that we should, uh, we should um, acknowledge a rather strong adversary current in the 20th and 21st centuries concerning the sublime, uh, because it has been accused, if that's the right word, of being both patriarchal and tyrannical. In other words, if one were to parse an ideology of the sublime, uh, there are many who would say that it's gendered, not just masculine, but hyper-masculine, and that and that politically, and this in some ways comes out already of the discussion at the end of, of, of Longinus, that politically it's anti-democratic. That is to say, it imposes on the recipient a kind of tyrannical authority. Uh, and this is, uh, this is very widespread. I won't name names. <laughs> but, but a number of people who have made arguments of this kind, and, and you know, it's interesting to think about something I think those of us sitting here care about a great deal. Um, uh, under this sort of threat, and maybe thinking about how to counteract it, or at least put it in perspective. So, mm -hmm. You know, I... I I know that line of argument well, as, as you can imagine, and, and I don't buy it, and it's partly because even in Longinus, you know, one of, one of his great examples of the sublime is a poem, a lyric poem by Sappho, and it's the first time in classical literary criticism I know of that a woman writer's work is taken that seriously, and, and I'm not a classicist, so I don't know this for sure, but it, I, is that the only reason we have this poem by Sappho? because Longinus preserved it that way? I think maybe I heard that once. I think, I think yeah. that, it, that it is the most preferred, per, uh, uh, preserved form of poem. Mm, of that particular it was on, uh, it, its praises were on everyone's lips and, yeah. and, and, and had been. I mean, the extraordinary thing about the poem, as Longinus says, is that it expresses uh, uncontrollable emotion in perfectly controlled mm. verse the verse which we now call sapphics. Uh, it's, it's an absolutely perfectly controlled meter, and yet constantly straining against it is the volcanic mm. emotion mm. that she's feeling about her lost, beloved Anactoria. It's, uh, and it's, it's very emotional, and it's very physical. It's very bodily, and you know she's, she's looking at this beloved woman, and she's sweating, she's trembling, she's gasping for breath, she's cold, then she's hot. I mean, and, and it's the combination of all these things, Longinus says, that makes it sublime. The fact that she can weave together all these cha chaotic and even contradictory 
physiological symptoms as well as emotional feelings. So in Burke too, you know, the, the, the great 18th century sublime theorist in the English tradition, in Burke the, the sublime is very physical and very bodily. And part of the slam against the sublime was that it's disembodied and, you know, and, and, and it's transcendental. And, uh, but, but there's such a rich sublime tradition, including Longinus and that citation of Sappho you know, that, that says, no, we feel the sublime in our bodies and with our bodies. It's, it's not up there someplace. But that's the, the, the as I'm listening, I keep wondering, it's not anything I know much about, but as I listen, I, I'm not clear what's the, what is the experience and what is the product that causes that experience. So uh, when you go up on the mountain and you are looking, is that uh, perspective, that scenario, what you are seeing the sublime, or is it what you are feeling the sublime? And as a second question is, what is it you are feeling? If you were to, because it seems there's always a lack of sharpness to me when we say it's sublime. What is it and what is it we feel? Uh, is it joy? Is it awe? Is it the uncanny feeling which contains elements of some anxiety or discomfort? So uh, my... Yeah, it's, you know, the mountains by themselves are, aren't, if, if nobody's there, the mountains aren't sublime, right? It's, it's, if the sublime is, in a, is a human experience, you need a human observer to have the sublime experience. So that one's easy. You know, the, the ocean isn't sublime when, when no one's out at sea in it, but, you know, when you have a huge wave and you're seeing it, it's sublime. Um, that, you know, that lack of definition is, this will sound like a cop-out, but I don't think it is. It, <laughs> the lack of definition is built into the sublime because it's what eludes our categories. It's what... Um, Keats has this lovely phrase, you know, when he talks about how the Elgin marbles, the Elgin marbles tease us out of thought. The sublime is what teases us out of thought. We, we can't, our, our um, well-honed, you know, cognitive abilities are, are you know, well-used, stable categories. They just fall by the wayside. Uh, it's a moment of, for me, the sublime is a moment of, of breakdown. And in that moment, we get this sense that, that the world was greater than we ever supposed. And, and Kant would add that you know, the human mind is greater than we ever supposed because somehow, even though we can't imagine it, we can't take it in, we're still cognizing it in, in, in some odd, intuitive feeling way. So it's hard for me to know exactly what Kant means at that moment, but, he, but, but it's almost like we feel our way into it. Mm -hmm. we, can't, we can't grasp it, but we know it's there. But uh, I understand that. But then when I listen to James, and I'm very happy that he's here because he brings uh, a perspective which I think is so important in this, he feels the sublime a lot of the time. You have to go up those mountains. <laughs> and James, he, he is almost constantly in, in the sublime. Why I started off by saying I think music is the easiest route. <laughs> but I was thinking about the mountains as well because um, I have that same feeling 
when I go up into the mountains. And now I was thinking, I'm trying to figure this out for myself. Bruckner, the great symphonies of Bruckner, I always think are sort of written for the mountaintops. And he was writing his music to the glory of God. But somehow when you hear those giant symphonies with their perfect mathematical structure, um, that's sort of where it takes me. But music is not, his music is not about trying to replicate the mountains. Um, so, I, and Beethoven in the Pastoral Symphony, as Wagner said, is not, and Beethoven said, is not trying to depict the countryside. It's trying to go, it's going beyond, 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 beyond. So for me, when I listen to a Bruckner Symphony, I get an extra dimension, um, frankly, than I do from just being on the mountaintop and being overwhelmed by that. And great music, for me, but it's because I'm a very simple soul, I think. Great music uh, just puts me in touch, uh, I think, with everything that, it, that has existed. Um, for all of my lack of knowledge about pretty much everything, that somehow um, there is a truth and a unity, and uh, it's not a religious thing. And I think I'm, I'm fascinated by to what extent is all of this eventually just chemicals? I mean, this worries me a lot when I'm thinking about, I try to analyze why do, do I have these feelings about music? And I want to know more about what it is. And these days, are we not, is there not a path that is leading us to believe that all of this is simply chemical reactions? Well, going back to the distinction between the sublime and the experience of the sublime in the mountains, <laughs> Kant uh, actually mentions the peasants of the Savoy, the Savoie, uh, who are so acclimatized to the mountains because they live there that they have no experience of them at all. They're just, it's, just, it's just their daily environment. So that what Kant is suggesting is that a certain distance from the quotidian experience of whatever it is that surrounds you is required. And in a certain sense, that would suggest, well, it isn't chemical. Because if it were chemical, you're in a mountain, you're going to have the experience. And, that. uh -huh. <laughs> and that's that. Whereas Kant is suggesting that it must, to some extent, be a question of environmental distance and not intimacy. And that's where the element of fear, for one thing, comes in, which is so frequently uh, associated with the first phase of the experience of the sublime. The idea is that initially, in response to something that seems overwhelming, we, see, we feel fear. But then we realize that we're not actually in danger, that it is a kind of a proxy danger, that we are, in effect, safe, we're standing at the top of the mountain, but there's the railing that the tourist industry has put in for us. And, and okay, fine. We're say, and then, through a kind of recoil or retrieval of self-respect, we internalize the experience. And we feel that, in some sense, um, it is uh, uh, the result of our own emotional or cognitive power. Uh, so that, and Longinus says this too, he says the amazing thing about a great utterance is that it transports us, it puts us into an ecstasy, ecstasis, it transports us 
so that we imagine that we ourselves have produced the thing that we have heard. Right. So, so he, he takes you through the whole experience as well. It's like a kid in, you know, watching a baseball game and swinging his little toy bat. And somebody hits a home run, and he's just so enthusiastic, he's swinging his bat, he thinks he hit the home run himself. He, he, he had through a, a, the intensity of identification, he has this moment of thinking, he did it, you know, which is part of the excitement. Well, in, in music, the great uh, interpreters are recreators. I think at the moment of performance, you are the creator. I mean, you have to be to make it convincing, uh, I think. But, uh, well, one, one thing um, that philosophers have puzzled over with, with this sublime experience that is this kind of mixed, um, painful, pleasurable experience is, um, which I think will get um, to some of some of your worries, Ed, is um, that it's not clear where the where exactly the pleasure should come from from this experience. So, um, so if the experience starts off with a feeling of being um, kind of in, in terrified or overwhelmed, um, feeling existentially insignificant in some ways, where does the pleasure come from? And that's been kind of a puzzle for philosophers. From, from the 18th century on. I've I just been thinking uh, about that and relation to the experience on the mountain and the experience of great music. It's a profound and wonderful loneliness. Mm. You know, pleasurable, but terrifying, but, but yeah, worrying, uh, worrying, but wonderful loneliness. Mm -hmm. That's interesting because part of the political critique is that the sublime is demagoguery and that uh, the power of an orator is capable of transforming masses into a single entity mm -hmm. uh, or sinister community. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, well, I think, I mean, the various philosophers have tried to come up with the answer to, you know, where's the pleasure coming from? And in some ways, I guess you get a more democratic kind of an answer from, uh, from, from the transcendental philosophers, um, that in some ways that this experience highlights a kind of power within the, the individual, within all human beings, in some ways to withstand um, this terrifying or overwhelming um, environment or, or force, so that there's a kind of a dialectic between um, feeling existentially very small and frail and feeling powerful and in some ways mm. um, transcending natural limits that one is confronted with in these kinds of experiences. So, yeah. And by the way, in New Zealand, um, you seldom find those safety rails when you go, <laughs> you know, so I wonder to what extent our uh, search for um, this sublime in nature in this country, where, too, where there are too many safety things there for it to remind you, whereas in New Zealand there's this fantastic kind of risk and people get killed and get eaten by sharks in Australia because there's no notice saying that sharks could eat you, you know, <laughs> so, yeah. The what? Yes. For experience, that's true. But is that the whole sublime experience? In, in other words, you feel the fear, 
but does the absence of the safety net, let's say, uh, prevent you from the recoil and recovery that is allegedly or traditionally part of the experience? Well, the, 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 in musical terms, I realize that the only times that I think I can produce music of any worth uh, which is probably seldom, to be honest, or any of us, is when there's you are, Don't there's say absolutely that. You, will, you will you will not have a job anymore. <laughs> there's absolutely no safety <laughs> all net at all. You have to really throw all of that away. And the great performers that I think of, we talked about Furtwängler earlier, um, an age where they were doing less repertoire but doing it with such uh, wholeheartedness. Um, it's very seldom that I hear. This is a terrible thing to say, right? Um, <laughs> um, modern performances where I don't feel that there's a safety net and there's something too structured, there's, a, there's something around the performance that doesn't release the sublime. I mean, listen, uh, sorry, but, uh, but I'm thinking of no safety net. Listen to Glenn Gould playing Goldberg variations if you want the sublime. And that's also interesting because when I think about that, you can watch him play and you can listen to him play. And is the experience the same? Is it even more sublime when you see this soul so wrapped up in his loneliness with this music that you're, profound, you're drawn in profoundly? Yeah, there's a category. Uh, you know, as you were talking about the lack of the safety net, I was thinking if, if you read um, people that, you know, nature writers, like John Muir or, you know, that, that, that class. There's a, a, a class of experience called edge experiences that often get represented where, again, you're, just, you're pushed beyond what you, what you think is possible for you, and, and yet you still survive, you know? And, and that is often a moment that, that unleashes all kinds of sublime description. And, and, and so I agree, you know, you, if you play with a net, you know, if you've got the guardrail, it's not going to happen. On the other hand, if you don't survive, then you can't ever tell about it. <laughs> I guess that's what I meant about the shark. <laughs> <laughs> what about Schopenhauer? Yeah, Schopenhauer, I, I, um, his, his theory of the sublime is, I think, very Kantian. Um, he kind of takes over a lot of the Kantian theory, the distinction between the dynamical and the mathematical sublime. Um, but the key difference, I think, between their theories, and, and actually this might lead into the music <laughs> as well, is uh, that uh, for, for Kant, the, the source of the pleasure in the experience of the sublime uh, comes from the recognition of a supersensible part of us, um, which is, for Kant, our rational vocation, our um, our vocation to sort of understand, fathom nature um, as fully as possible, and and our moral, um, rational vocation to be able to obey the moral law no matter what kinds of obstacles are, are put in our way. Um, and and Schopenhauer had a very different view about morality and he had a different take on on um, the powers of reason. And so he replaces the role of reason in Kant with um, a certain kind of attitudinal freedom so that when, when one is faced with a very you know, t 
terrifying landscape. Let's say you're, you're facing a, volca a volcano or a tornado or something, uh, or a raging storm at sea, um, that the, the pleasure that one would, f would feel, according to Schopenhauer's theory, would be a sense that uh, one has an, uh, a power to sort of respond to it in a different way. So that one, could, one can um, not care one can uh, kind of disengage from, from the will. Um, but actually, Schopenhauer's theory is really interesting for music, and I think why he was such a, a darling of composers um, in that music for him was extraordinarily special in that for his metaphysics, you know, the, the ultimate nature of the world is, is will, um, a, a sort of a blind striving. And Schopenhauer thought that that music actually um, was a copy of the, of the metaphysical will. And so actually one's experience with music would be, with the right sort of music, would be more powerful than any other experience with art. And one thing that's puzzled me, though, actually, about Schopenhauer's aesthetic theory with respect to music is that he himself does not apply his categories of the beautiful and the sublime to music. Um, he talks about music as being the most powerful art form where we really sort of tap into the, the ultimate nature of the world and we resonate with universal emotions. Um, and that, that gets us closest to the way things really are. But he, he does not talk about music as either sort of beautiful or, or sublime. Um, but it seems that those categories uh, would, would naturally fit uh, quite well with with music, and I know um, Hanslick wrote on you know the, on the musically beautiful, but I was wondering actually um, if if you thought that is there a specific sort of music or are there specific um, uh, kinds of forms in music that uh, you think would be would be the musically sublime that would be particular forms. It's difficult to say. I mean. If we, th I mean, the, the, the Schopenhauer was such an influence on great music. You, you can't imagine certain pieces, I guess, existing the same way without Schopenhauer. In my limited knowledge, you know, of what I've read about the influences with Wagner and so on. Um, but when we think back in music, I think the first sort of music I would call sublime might be the music that had uh, relatively little formal structure in a sense, like music of Palestrina, uh, these great choral pieces of Talis, uh, music that just seems to uh, hypnotize, to flow, to be in touch with, with something that just goes directly to our souls without us having to have any knowledge, any, right? I think that's a great thing about uh, music, maybe what he was capturing, uh, talking about the will that music is closest, is because it's something so natural and to be very simplistic about it, that wherever we go in the world and we play a minor triad and we play a mi major triad everybody is going to understand what is sad and what is happy uh, what is the fast rhythm, the slow rhythm so it's just, I think was he saying that there's something so simply natural about music? Yeah, yeah, I definitely thought that, um, that there was a kind of universal 
language to, of feeling to music, at least the right sort of music. He had, uh, he had tremendous criticisms of program music and, yeah. uh, uh, and, and music that didn't really, that wasn't truly expressive of... Um, Which of I think the, was why Wagner was very careful to talk about Beethoven as it's not a picture you know, the pastoral symphony. Of the, and so many composers subsequently have been very, very um, cautious about attributing any kind of description to their music. They've put something and withdrawn it later for this very, very reason. Because when you're listening to the scene by the brook of Beethoven, you're not picturing a brook with fish and glints of water. Sometimes when we interpret that music and you're working with an orchestra and you're not getting the sound you want, you do describe and you try to get the music by painting a picture for a moment. But that's not what it's about, is it? It's about the overwhelming feeling of... But what is it? Is it emotion? How do you separate emotion from the sublime? I mean, what is the, the difference between overwhelming emotion, overwhelming happiness and sub sublimity? I don't, what is that? Um, well, I, I think at least um, I think the sublime needs to be in some ways turbulent. There, mm. So there needs to be Contrast. some sort of, yeah, some kind of dialectic. Now maybe this is controversial, but some sort of dialectic between um, a kind of feeling overwhelmed and then in some ways, um, which, which would seem quite negative, so, you know, feeling um, overwhelmed by emotion or overwhelmingly sad or, um, and, then, and then some sort of positive affective experience that that counters that. Um, so I'm not sure if, if, the, if an, an overwhelming sense of happiness would, would, be, would be a candidate for a sublime experience, unless there was, in some ways, some turbulence there. It's interesting, because most people, when they talk about their love of Mozart and their, a, a phrase of Mozart that really moves you, you talk about the happiness of Mozart, but always with a tinge of sadness. There's always something more than just Happiness is always in, in this genius. Always somehow uh, reflects a contrast. Oh, in the holy halls. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. I, what about program music? Is there a po is there the possibility of sublimity in Berlioz when we know the head is falling from the guillotine into the basket, or in in Peter and the Wolf, or or whatever program music one chooses to name, is there a possibility of sublimity or does the, I don't know, literariness or narrative ambition of the music somehow preclude the sublime? No, I'm thinking, actually, the Berlioz Symphony Fantastique, you think of the first movement of his inspiration from his unrequited loves and so on, but when you think of the nature of that music in the first movement, I think that reaches a kind of sublime because it just transcends any kind of uh, poem or any kind of feeling. It just, I think, I'm not so sure about the march to the scaffold with the head falling into the basket, but that's, <laughs> maybe we need that contrast. But I think progr programmatic music can be sublime. I mean, think of, uh, you know, you might like the Strauss Alpine Symphony where he does sort of describe in chapters the journey up the mountain. Um, I think that that can reach in our minds in great performance a, 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 a tremendous sublimity. I think it can be. I see no reason why not. But it somehow also, I also feel that those great pieces don't need the programmatic content. As we've been talking about the sublime in music, I've been thinking about are there art forms 
that can't convey the sublime very well. And I was thinking about film, because clearly there are films that try to convey the sublime. But if you see them, you know, 20 years later, they just seem sort of pathetic in those attempts, like <laughs> the Ten Commandments, you know. And I think for early audiences, that was like, wow, you know. <laughs> That's Onswar, and we Herzog's see it. It's like, yeah, right. No, yeah, the first time well, you saw Nosferatu. Yeah, but but um, it has right. But then they have to have music as well. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, and they do use music, but like James Cameron's Titanic, you know, was that was an attempt to mass market the sublime, or um, the Perfect Storm, you know, where at that moment when Mark Wahlberg, for all his muscles, is about that big, and the wave is that big, you know, that that's a sublime moment, but does it work or is it sort of cheesy? You know, can film, is film unable to, to sustain? Can it, as opposed to... I'm not trying to be a films. snob. I'm I'm just, just, no, I'm just... No. <laughs> I'm, I'm just inviting you guys to be snobs. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot. <laughs> I mean, the question of, of whether artworks at all could be sublime has been a, 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 con a somewhat controversial issue. Uh, I mean, so in some ways that, you know, every, well, should I say, pretty much every work of art has some form, right? It has a beginning, in the case of musical um, compositions, beginning and an end, um, or, or a, a painting has a frame, same, you know, there's, there's a form to, um, to a film so would that in some ways discount it from being, being sublime just there? And, and actually on some readings of Kant, Kant does sort of say, no, artworks can't be sublime, even though he has certain examples that he uses of sublime artworks. But, but it seems like it's a, it's a position that he may have really held. Um, but it, it seems that it's, as, long as, um, as long as one can uh, kind of, um, if one has the, the sort of emotional response to Say the Titanic, especially when it, you know maybe when it first came out and there had been a lot of of um, imitators. Uh, if one can um, have the experience of feeling somehow overwhelmed or uh, by the power of the sea, or and and get into that dialectic of of thought and emotion, then why not? Why couldn't that absolutely be sublime? I don't see any reason in in principle why it couldn't be. George recreates the New Zealand experience, for example. <laughs> but but it's, you know, it really does come back to the question, though, of the place of form and thinking about the sublime, again, as you say. And you began by, or at one point, uh, reminded us that especially in the 18th century, the sublime is the uh, gendered opposite of the beautiful. Addison and Burke described the beautiful as smooth and round and soft, uh, get it, uh, and, uh, and, and associates the beautiful with reproduction. Uh, the sort of the whole 18th century, Addison says of the beautiful, he, he, he distinguishes three categories, uh, the beautiful, uh, the, unco the uncommon, as he calls it, which came to be called the picturesque, and the great, which came to be called the sublime. Uh, well, the, the, the purpose of each of those is spelled out by Addison. He says that the beautiful exists to procreate the species. He says that the uncommon exists to inspire curiosity and to increase knowledge. And that the great exists to make us experience reverence for God. 
in other words, for it, it, it is something finite, but in the, in the contemplation of which we realize that there's something infinite. In other words, in a certain sense, it already anticipates the argument of Kant, except it's not a subjective idea, but a spiritual or transcendent idea. Uh, but the beautiful is plainly um, the usurper of any idea of form, right? Because even the picturesque, to some extent, and certainly the great or the sublime, uh, tend to take us out of form. Not necessarily, not by way of form. I mean, obviously the intermediation is formal, but it takes us out of form. Whereas the beautiful uh, is, as it were, uh, form in and for itself and for its own sake. Right? And so the place of form in this conversation, I continue to think, is, is an important one. Yeah. This, this uh, uh, round table, you have a picture, a Turner picture, right? Is that right? The, on the website, I think. And just as you were speaking, I was reminded that Finkel's Cave of Mendelssohn, this wonderful piece from the 1830s, came out the same, I think was performed the same year as the Turner yeah. picture. Is that right, of Finkel's Cave? And that is framed. Mendelssohn's music is, is not. Which is closest to the sublime, I wonder? Well, the Turner does its best not to be formal. Uh, you have this huge cliff. The actual cave is almost impossible yeah. to discern in, in the painting. You then have the sea, and you have the one thing that is formally and conspicuously there is the, looks like a freight boat with a big cloud of black steam coming out of it, uh, on which we understand Turner was seated when he was thinking about how to compose his painting. Uh, and that's what you can see, as if to say, well, I can sort of, I am doing this from a perspective, and I can show you the perspective clearly. But I don't actually want to show you the cave itself, maybe for just the reason that um, if I do, music will have the advantage of me. <laughs> but, you know, as you described the Turner painting, you know, there's that loss of outline again and that confusion of categories, what's sky and what's sea, you know, or you, or you think of, you know, the burning ship pa paintings, you know, what's fire and, you know, and, and what's lightning coming down and what's a shaft of light. It, and, and, you know, it goes back to the Sappho poem, you know, where, where you're trembling and you're cold and you're hot and, you know, you're sweating all at the same time and, and you, can't, uh, um, you can't organize your experience. You know, your experience becomes radically disorganized and yet it's more powerful than it's ever been. So, so I, for me, Turner totally works as a sublime, but it's partly because he really captures that, that, that suspension of our ordinary categories. That seems to me to have been one of his big programs in his art. He was, was way ahead of music at that time, hmm. after all. You know, I mean, Mendelssohn's music is absolutely beautiful, but very formally structured and is more obviously picturesque, although I would argue that it isn't really. I mean, it goes much deeper than that. But when you think of what Turner was doing in the 30s, was it 1832, I think? That the, I mean, it's you know, music came several decades later, music that was less, that, that was so, um, how can I say, so, so unfocused in a way. Um, 
you're going to the Impressionists. and uh, It's amazing how I have to give it to Turner over Mendelssohn. It's interesting, too, that, you know, that, that when you think about Turner, when you think about some of the composers you've mentioned, there's a lot of hosti hostility initially when, when they're doing their great works, right? A lot of people don't understand them. And, you know, and is that, is that somehow tied in with the sublime, the, you know, the art that, that goes ahead of its audience, mm -hmm. you know, which would, again, make it very different from a mass-marketed film that wants to manipulate yeah. its audience, you know, well, that, that wants to hit its audience right where, where it already is. I mean, Stravinsky famously said, you know, I was the vessel through which Le Sacre passed. Mm -hmm. And um, you think of Schoenberg's music, which I would argue is absolutely sublime, the, the, when he became more ex expressionistic with the 12 tone system, system so to speak, uh, which, whose, which music sounds more modern today than most music being written today, actually, and the century on is still totally misunderstood. Um, it, it, it seems that music takes a long time to catch up, and we're in a world where we're, we are so visual. Um, I would love to see a sublime, cuddly toy made, and my sublime, cuddly toy would be a sort of 12-tone wind-up thing for babies. <laughs> to see what, 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 um, what influence that would have on their perception of music in later life. I was just going to remark, in fact, in response to Alan's question, uh, how it is that uh, art we consider to be sublime, or at least to have a legitimate aspiration to sublimity, uh, is so often greeted with hostility. And one spontaneous first response is, well, obviously, we fear what we don't know. So it's a sublime emotion that we're having, and it just kind of gets stuck on the dislike that comes of fearing what we don't know. But at the same time, you know, there again, the question of, is there a sublime experience, the initial feeling of which is not fear? And I think that in describing music and the way in which we respond to music, you've been very strongly suggesting that, that, we, that probably we need to, dis not that some sublime experiences don't begin in fear, but that we need to dissociate, let's say, our definition of the sublime experience from the notion that it begins in fear. Yeah. There's a sublime moment in music which you either consider sublime or cheesy. I consider sublime. There's a wonderful oratorio by Edward Elgar, whose music I love, being English, The Dream of Gerontius or Gerontius. And there's a moment in that enormous work where there's a terrifying sort of march in the music and everything just goes crash and still, uh, where uh, Gerontius is allowed or perhaps allowed to see God for a moment but can't face. And I'm thinking allowed to see the sublime in a way because I don't think it's anything to do with God that's too restricting. But it is the most amazing moment in music where you, it's so frightened the music, it's so fearful, it's so overwhelming. And the moment of, of uh, reaching something it's unattainable and everything collapses. So the sublime is unattainable, Elgar's case. 
Ready for questions? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Please line up. I mean, it, it seems to me uh, that uh, there are uh, a few ghosts who have uh, been haunting this discussion, and I would like to uh, hear uh, your remarks on that. And that, and that, those would be society, culture, and class, and. Uh, None, neither of, none of those have been mentioned in an explicit way, and it seems to me to be very much the foundation of uh, the sublime, the way it's been discussed here. Yeah, well, we did, we, we talked a little bit about, is, is this still working? Yeah. yeah. Do I need, yeah, yeah. We I talked a little bit about uh, society in relation to Longinus, right, and, and his concern that, that this debate that was going on whether you need a democratic society for the sublime, which is interesting because that, that would distance it from these you know, fears that the sublime is related to authoritarianism that Paul mentioned, or, or whether what you need is a society that's less commercialistic and materialistic. Um, when you mention class, I'm, 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 I don't know if there's an implicit question there about whether the sublime is, is an inherently uh, upper class phenomenon that that you don't have a sublime in, until you have a mm -hmm. yeah please what I mean is you know when we're talking about uh, you know sublime in music it seemed to me that there's uh, uh, most of music that most people listen to uh, really has a has a great class difference from mm -hmm. the classical music mm -hmm. and especially twelve tone music. Um, uh, what about the pretenders? I mean, I, I think, right, there's as much ecstasy and sublimity, uh, sublimity there as, as in any music. Mm -hmm. But it, somehow that, that hasn't been a part of this discussion, and it seems to me we're, we're talking about a particular notion of the sublime, which uh, really has a, a, a class foundation, uh, or at least a, a part of the... Yeah. Part of the foundation does right. I, my vote would be for Jimi Hendrix as the you know, but seriously, and you know, but, but, but you're right. I mean, here we're all academically trained, and so we're going to our, you know, our stock academic examples: Turner, Mahler, you know, Milton. You've heard, you've heard them all, and you're right. There's there's a bigger world of sublime out there. It's interesting, in terms of the limits of the discussion, it, it, it is interesting that we don't want to talk very much about religion, because there's clearly an overlap between the of awe of the sublime and the awe of a lot of religious discourse and experience. So, so yeah, you, you've definitely located one of our blind spots so far. But, All along but, the watchtower, in hmm. particular, hmm. if we vote for Jimmy Hendrix. <laughs> and and uh, from a musician's point of view, I mean, one of the things I truly believe is music is music, you know. So um, within the definition of music, um, I hate the barriers that we put up that are both uh, restrictive and suggestive of class and elitism. What I was thinking of mostly is uh, that it's culture which licenses ecstasy. Uh, and, and, right, and, and that's, that's the kind of sublime that uh, 
I, 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 right, I find right, the most um, uh, um, aggressive, uh, you know, has the most aggressive uh, uh, call on, on my particular way of uh, responding. And it's, it's distinctly a, uh, a social form. And we, that really hasn't been mentioned. Yes, we understand about, uh, um, you know, whether it's democracy or you shouldn't be so, uh, uh, you know, much interested in money. Well, it's the wealthy who don't have to worry about money. It's not the poor people, right? So uh, do they somehow lack for the sublime, right? Could I jump in, actually, just quick, because um, well, I do think we've been largely talking about um, a, a, an aesthetic tradition that um, considers aesthetic experience to be disinterested. And so there is a certain kind of presumption that, well, one needs to have some, some leisure time, some, one needs to be able to take you know, time away from one's concerns in order to appreciate something in a disinterested fashion. That, that um, you could you could say well that is that's um, that's a privilege of people who have some significant leisure time, um, but what, what, at least um, with the tradition the 18th century tradition of the sublime, um, I would say it focused more on on nature though than art, and one of the one of the um, environments that was seen to be the most sublime were the starry heavens above us, which is. It's open to anybody, um, you know, with eyes to look up at, at the at the uh, night sky. So I think it's. I, I mean, I agree that there is a certain kind of class um, uh, bias. One needs the leisure time in order to have a kind of disinterested appreciation. But the objects that would be sublime, I would think, in some ways, are more democratically open. Okay. I Okay, go ahead. Uh, thanks, everybody, for a memorable uh, discussion. My question is for Professor Fry specifically, and it concerns ecology and the sublime. Um, um, characterizations of the sublime historically have been inflected with terms of terror and fear, which um, precipitate from the central concern of death and the subjectivity that that gives rise to. Um, it's universally acknowledged, or ought to be universally acknowledged, um, that we're on the fast track towards um, what T.S. Eliot would call the death of Earth um, in four quartets. Um, fossil fuels um, uh, accumulating in our atmosphere just rang for me when you when you talked about the sublime as repetition and accretion, um, and that production is ingrained in our quotidian lives, our daily lives. So if the experience of the sublime requires a kind of distance um, from quotidian experience, um, can that be achieved um, in this particular context? Um, if it requires a sort of internalization of a proxy danger, what happens when the danger is, is very real? Um, how does that complicate the um, internalization process? I guess what I'm getting at, um, in the context of our ecological moment, um, um, the impending catastrophe, probably. We don't have a time scale, but it's, it's looking that way. Um, is the possibility of, of, sub, of sublimity available to us? Um, if it's not, is that a problem? Uh, and is, if that's a problem, is it a political problem? Thank you. 
Thank you. It's a very, it's a very interesting question. I think the very concept of the Anthropocene itself uh, is sublime, primarily because it has to do with the traditional, very traditional way in which the sublime is a questioning of the limits of human power. Uh, there's an odd paradox about the Anthropocene. On the one hand, we are holding our feet to the fire uh, as a civilization in a way that we never did before. Uh, and on the other hand, we are supposing ourselves to have greater power than we supposed ourselves ever to have before. Uh, and in either case, you could say that it's something like a sublime experience. I suppose the question is, uh, depending on the degree to which one might feel that the Anthropocene is, how can I say it, a strong argument as opposed to a weak argument concerning <laughs> global warming, uh, one might wish to, one might wonder uh, about whether or not the relationship between the human and the impending disaster uh, remains sublime in the same way. You could argue, given the agreement most of us probably share that the disaster is impending, you could argue that this is very much like the traditional sublime moment in which one is having a Burkean experience of being overwhelmed by something external. And you could argue that if we accept the strong argument about human responsibility, uh, that that's more like the Kantian experience, experience of recognizing something in yourself that in response to what you see in the external world. So I guess I would put the ecological question in relation to the sublime in those terms. Sorry to have gone on, but you, you did ask me. <laughs> I, I too would like to thank the panel for a fascinating and broad-ranging discussion. Uh, the question I have, I guess, uh, relates to the difference between the object that's nominally sublime and the experience that, and the chemicals in our brain. Uh, I'm told that the Leibnizes and the Newtons have a sublime experience thinking about numbers. That would not be my experience, but I accept that they do. Uh, the question I have is, is there a relationship between um, the peak experience that may not have any objective uh, uh, cause particularly, uh, some, the Zen and the art of archery type experience uh, that we experience not necessarily for archery, it may come from uh, le mot juste, it may come from hitting a perfect forehand, it may come from various other types of events. Uh, is that similar in some sense? Uh, it feels to me as if it's similar, but maybe a minor league form of the sublime, not in the level of, of, of appreciating Bach or feeling transported, but I'd be interested in your thoughts. I, you know, I think it's close, but I, I think it, that it absolutely borders on it, but that the difference for me would be, it, it, well, it depends on, on, on how you experience if you experience it as the ultimate moment of mastery, like you really got it, then to me it's not sublime, but it's but it's close because you've transcended your usual capabilities and you know done some you know the, like being in the zone, you know that. But if you had this moment where you know you had no idea what you did, and then you looked and 
the arrow was quivering, you know, right in the heart of the bullseye. That's more like the sublime. You know, when, when you've just, you weren't there, you didn't get to be there, and yet, and yet it happened. And so, again, you get a sense that, wow, there's something going on that I don't have a handle on, control over, that's bigger than me, and yet it just did this thing. That, to me, would be closer to the sublime, if, if not the sublime itself. Um, it's a marvelous discussion, and it's all present for me because I haven't been thinking about the sublime. Uh, so my experience uh, with what's happened here is all within the context of the now. Um, and uh, it became, uh, it, I was going to say, it wasn't a uh, sublime experience, and I don't mean that as a, as a subtle comment on the discussion, which I think was terrific. Instead, it became a graphic experience for me after a progression um, because when I came in, I began to hear a discussion of binaries. You had fear, and then you have this experience. You have something else. You have, go to the mountains. You hear music. Um, so I was hearing a, a binary, and largely a binary of, of flow, an experience and a consequence. Um, and it became very graphic. Um, and eventually, out of that graph, because there were spots, it, it became sublimes. I was hearing a discussion of sublimes. Um, and philosophers may have disagreed, uh, which suggests to me, therefore, they were landing on different landscapes or ex having different experiences. Um, and within this context, there is no set definition, at least that I heard, of the sublime. So, we have a plurality of sublimes. Uh, mostly, as I say, I, the binary was a something leading to something. Uh, but there was an, uh, not a word used that I'd like to see if you have any comments on it. It was uh, it, it suggested constantly, uh, discontinuity. That um, in this plurality of experiences, I would say with music, uh, you probably don't, it, it's a flow, not a discontinuity from the, what's happening to the sense of the sublime. Uh, uh, but in a disruption of life, severe loss, suddenly all expectations, they've reached a, an impasse. Uh, there's a discontinuity. On other levels, there are discontinuities, uh, expectations, totally, no, wow, what happened? <laughs> Uh, and you could have that. Uh, so I'm seeing this graph of physical. You mentioned, you know, various physical things happening and then the sublime. Uh, sensual, many senses, visual and sensual, uh, leading to this. Um, emotional, strong emotional experiences. So I just wanted to share that and then get a sense of, uh, particularly the, the sense of how discontinuity as well as the flow are related to this experience and then the product which we call the sublime, but should be sublimes. <laughs> Thank you. I, I feel very strongly that discontinuity is at the heart of the sublime, and I, I, that's why I talked about you know, the rift in the fabric of communication or rhetoric or discourse, uh, uh, something that um, unexpectedly bursts through. 
Uh, and I think in the 20th century, one of the more interesting uh, instances of thinking of it this way is in the work of the, of the Frankfurt School philosopher Walter Benjamin, who speaks of distraction or zerstreuung as a necessary component of the experience of genuinely modern art. Uh, and I, and the, the way I always try to explain it is that it's basically it's Saul on the road to Damascus. Right? He's, he's riding his horse along, he's paying no attention, oh, all of a sudden he falls off his horse. And he picks himself up, dusts himself off, and he realizes that now he's Paul, you know, somebody with whom I can identify, uh, and that he has had a, tra he has had a transformational experience. Uh, and that he could not have had this experience except as a form of, of disruption or distraction. He couldn't have had the experience if he just kept galloping on toward Damascus. There had to be this moment of complete disruptive surprise which opened up for him the possibility of a transformative experience. Uh, and I think that's the way Benjamin thinks of distraction in, for example, uh, the work of art essay. You want to say about discontinuity in terms of music? Well, in music, I'm just thinking as you were speaking that um, you think of the sublime continuity of the music of Mozart. And he wrote from one moment to the next that you can see just a complete flow. And then you think of the disruptions that Beethoven went through in order to achieve the Fifth Symphony and how he almost didn't get to the point that we know now is this sublime work uh, because his work was constantly he was disrupted by his own thoughts there was such a lack of continuity in his um, thought and yet he chiseled away and managed from all of this to produce these cohesive wonderful pieces I, that's probably nothing to do with your question really but <laughs> I'm just a simple musician so. uh, yeah I'm wondering uh, how much does one state of mind determine whether you'll have a sublime experience as opposed to the actual event. Can anything cause someone to have a sublime experience if they're in the right frame of mind, particularly if they're on the right drugs? <laughs> I might um, answer that. I actually think um, sort of depending on your view of the sublime, I think if you go with a more physiological view of the sublime, uh, like in Burke, where it's in some ways um, a kind of relief from a terror or um, uh, a, a kind of relaxation of, of, of mental and bodily exertion, um, then it seems like uh, it's, it would be kind of a, a fairly easy experience for anyone to have. But I think those uh, who take a more transcendental approach to the sublime see that there's much more of a cognitive element to a sublime experience that it involves a kind of train of thought um, about one's place in the in the universe and uh, humans in nature, and in that case, um, I think you might need a little more education of, of a certain sort, or you might have to have certain ideas in order to have that sort of uh, sublime experience. Wouldn't that imply that the same ex event would cause the same people to be sublime? Why? It seems like people have very different experiences with the same event. So there's, not, there's nothing absolute about it. It just depends on the person. Uh, yeah, although I think even though different people might have different uh, experiences, you might think that, well, certain experiences are more appropriate 
for the environment than others, or certain experiences may be more serious. Um, so I think in some ways it doesn't mean, just because people might have differing experiences doesn't mean that there's no normativity um, available to us about these experiences. I think it goes back to the first intervention that, it, I mean, there is cultural conditioning in the experience of the sublime, and probably uh, there isn't anyone who doesn't fall under one form or another of that cultural conditioning and therefore responds to a certain uh, set of external sort of events uh, as the sublime. I, I, I think that's possible, very, very probable, and that, and, and that, that, uh, that means all kinds of music, all kinds of art, all kinds of, nat of experience in the natural world. Thank you. Thank you so much for this awesome roundtable. Um, I have a question that's similar, but looking at it from a different perspective, from the individual um, feeling connected to the universe and um, whether or not the sublime could be or that moment of um, feeling beauty or feeling the sublime be a way to connect to um, society, to feel like a member of a community, for example, I know that feeling standing on top of a mountain, and you know that feeling, and you know that feeling, and that I could know that feeling when you mention it implies that there's some kind of shared or communal experience. And if you could talk about how, um, I'm also coming through this from the perspective of Emerson um, and his idea of like the common heart and human sentiment. And if you could talk about how that could maybe be the foundation for society or community. I, everyone's looking at me. <laughs> well, you, you went on the mountain. So that's, yeah, that's a really uh, um, thoughtful question, and I appreciate it. The, um, and and I, I'm understanding it various ways, and one is, at first I thought you were asking, is there a kind of a social sublime? And, and then I started to get worried about, you know, there's, there's the, the fascist, you know, sublime where you're <laughs> part of the crowd, you know, and, and that's... That to me is is not the sublime. Maybe just because I find it distasteful, you know. I mean, I'm I'm not sure I have a good intellectual reason to rule that out. But but then I, but but then I understood you saying more like, do you tap into something that then connects you to everyone else? You know, can the sublime be? We were just talking about the sublime as disruption. Can the sublime also lead to connection? I you know I I, I guess there it would be insofar as the sublime shakes you out of your habitual sense of self, shakes you out of, of your, uh, your sense of, of you as a stable individual with this name and this history, you know, then does it enable new kinds of connections? And yeah, I would say yes. Hi, thank you for your discussion. Um, I have a question about the permanence of sublime, and uh, a couple of examples about this is um, I always take pictures of everything, so I'm very observant of my surroundings, and a pigeon on a rail on the way to work one morning will cause me to take pause, and it's almost sublime, something so simple. And the next morning, I'll see the same thing, and it's not there, but the memory of the first one remains. So memory in sublime, I think, is something that I wonder about. But also, um, going back to the mountains, for example, let's say you, you make that trip with someone you love, 
and you lose that loved one. And suddenly, that sublime experience is shifted into a very different, painful type of sublime. I was just wondering if you could comment on that. Um, actually, uh, the mountains is a really interesting example. And I, um, there's, a, there's a book called Mountain Gloom and Mountain Glory. Uh, thank you. Marjorie Hope Nicholson. Um, and if I, if I recall correctly, her thesis is that actually it wasn't until uh, about the mid-17th century that, is that right, that people started actually thinking of mountains as sublime uh, and not uh, blights on the Earth's surface. And that's largely because of theological views beforehand that held that the, the earth was originally made by God to be a perfect, uh, perfectly smooth, and that it was because of the fall and sin that, that then the world became you know, uh, pocked with mountains. And so um, in some ways, it, it seemed that at a certain point, it had to be um, people's ideas about the earth and, um, and, and, and theology that enabled mountains to become sublime. And I think uh, to be, be experienced as sublime. I think one of the issues that you raise about, you know, sort of what's the subjective um, component to the sub sublime experience? How much um, has, has it to do really with the ideas we have of, of the world and um, the metaphysical ideas and, or even personal subjective associations? You know, I climbed that mountain um, with, with the love of my life or um, something like that. So. I think, uh, I mean, that um, gets at some of the, this, the subjective aspect of this experience, and which would make it, I think, very difficult to, to give um, any convincing account of sub, uh, sublime experience that is perfectly objective. You know, that, well, these kinds of things are sublime and these are not. It, it seems to have a lot to do with, um, with, with personal and also um, cultural and intellectual associations. What interests me about this lecture is it starts out with a particular point and then radiates all over, and the complexity of the subject becomes vaster and vaster. Now, uh, I'm a painter, an art historian, so I'm going to speak a little bit on a biased point of view from my particular stance, but this kind of discussion has happened more in the last 10, 15 years, and prior to that, there wasn't as much interest in the sublime. And when you go back in history and you see religion took a very strong hold at a certain point, and then we move into the 19th century with nature, and then art took on the role of the sublime. It became the mediator of the transcendental. And then the art world changed and it went into a gear of high and low. And there was a questioning about should we be in involved in the cloud? Should we be thinking more about what's happening on the sidewalk around us to look at all the, all the detritus of the world? And the, the emphasis on this peak experience, on this, this experience of transition or the friction within the pearl that brings about this, this thunder was not essential. And I'm finding now in these years, which is interesting, with the pendulum is swinging, and there's more discussion about this nature of, of things of this sort. And so, um, again, 
uh, it, it's such a, you brought up so, I can't even begin because there were so many subjects that came under, but perhaps the most important thing discussed was the concept of discontinuity, which does bring out the, the awe and the fear and the sense somehow that we are, the human condition is a very fragile and, and limited condition. And I think it's that awareness of how fragile uh, we are as, as humans and as the earth is. Yeah. The 20th century saw a widespread distrust of aesthetics in general, one might want to say, not just of the sublime. Uh, the beautiful, for its part, uh, came under a comparable cloud. Uh, the literary critic I.A. Richards early in the 20th century spoke of the phantom aesthetic state. And what he meant was the state of disinterestedness in Kant uh, in which we uh, have an aesthetic experience as opposed to appetitive experience or a cognitive slash moral experience. The only one of those experiences which, being, which is disinterested being the aesthetic experience. The 20th century, skeptical of most things, uh, has been skeptical of disinterestedness in general uh, and has insisted uh, through uh, the great triumvirate that Ricoeur called the hermeneutics of suspicion, Marx, Nietzsche, Freud, has insisted that experience is interested and that there is no uh, bracketing of a certain kind of experience as though it were disinterested. Uh, so therefore, in, 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 in this sense, it was the aesthetic in general that went into a kind of eclipse. People were afraid to talk about their appreciation uh, of uh, art or of their environment uh, on aesthetic grounds. Now this, it seems to me, for a variety of reasons that I'm not sure I fully understand, uh, because perhaps I'm a little skeptical myself, despite being very interested in aesthetics. Uh, this, it seems to me, uh, has uh, somewhat um, subsided this, as it were, hostility toward the aesthetic. Uh, and we're hearing, in addition to hearing more about the sublime again, we're also hearing more about the beautiful. There are people like Elaine Scarry, just to name one, uh, who are dedicated to what I think in the early 20th century it would have been called a cult of beauty. Uh, and insisting on the return of this as a category which is intrinsically an, an ethical one. And I think the return of the sublime uh, also has an, an implicitly ethical dimension of the kind that we've been obliquely talking about during this whole discussion. So that, that's how I would maybe explain, if that's the right word, how it's returning, you know? Also, there, there were a couple of moments in the middle of the 20th century, though, where the sublime kind of uh, in painting came back. Yeah. Right. And Right. I thought that was sublime, but I was afraid to say so. <laughs> okay. Okay, hi. Uh, this discussion seems to be dancing around the fringe and not tackling the issue that would seem to be essential to most people who think about this subject. 
uh, namely, what is the meaning of these experiences? Uh, yes, on one level, a mountain is a mountain, it's just a rock. And then somebody comes along and has a different experience of it. Is that experience merely an illusion based on the, uh, the chemicals that are dancing around inside our body? Or uh, is it just that those chemicals are associated with an experience that has some real meaning that tells us something that is beyond the immediate reality of our perception and is carrying and uh, giving us some clue to another dimension. Some would call it mystery. Uh, of course, some people are uncomfortable with that because then that takes you into the realm of spirituality and some people then get suspicious that you're talking about God, perhaps. Uh, and many feel much more comfortable in reducing it to the materialistic level and talking about these chemicals dancing uh, inside. Uh, so I wish you would address that. Are uh, these experiences meaningful in giving us a clue to something that is beyond our understanding, beyond our immediate perception, but that, represent, that represents something that is a reality, but something that be, uh, may be beyond our grasp of our immediate reality? I, I would like someone else to answer that question because I feel like I've already come closest to that of, of anyone. But I did want to say this is like the third or fourth time that the chemicals in the brain have come up. And I just wanted to make a point about the chemicals. Every thought we have is because of chemical reactions in our brains. Every perception, every movement we make, none of that happens without chemical reactions in the brain. So to say something's just chemicals in the brain. Everything, everything in our mental lives is chemicals in the brain. So it doesn't reduce it at all. It's just, you know, that, that's kind of, for me, that's, that's sort of a, a category mistake. So, so I just want to get the chemicals well, out Well, that's of the not way. entirely true what you're saying because there are many people who do believe that it's just chemicals. I mean, one big school of neuroscience, for example, would say that uh, uh, that uh, brain is just, a, it's another name for consciousness and that consciousness is brain, okay? And that's another way of saying that it's all physical, it's all chemicals. Uh, of course, I mean, we couldn't be here, we couldn't be having this discussion unless we were encased in a body with all of the physiology associated with that. But is there something beyond that? Are these experiences merely illusions? Is your experience of music merely an illusion because it evokes those chemicals in your body uh, and do the chemicals produce the experience? Does the experience produce the chemicals? Or are the chemicals just associated with an experience that has some meaning yet beyond the immediate reality? Well, I mean, I can't answer that, music, that question in music. I, I believe that my reaction to music when I first heard it and I hear it now is something beyond, something I don't understand, can't comprehend. But I'm always trying to challenge that. I find the fascinating in challenging that with, um, with questions all the time. And why um, I, I don't believe that, that it's God. I don't, I'm not sure what it is. But I do believe that that sense, sense of cent, central loneliness that we discussed earlier um, brings me together with something. That I think that that, in great music, uh, that it does serve uh, a purpose, 
I believe that great music can simply bring us together, whether we want to call it God, whether we want to call it spirituality, whatever we want to call it, I really believe not only great music, great art, uh, that is its, its role, its purpose, its design, its glory. Right. Well, yeah, there's a legend about Verdi that as a child, the first time he heard uh, a symphony uh, or, or some music that uh -huh. overwhelmed him, he fainted. And uh, then his parents decided that maybe we should get him that piano he's been asking for. <laughs> right. Right. Well, I think your question is a good one, but I don't think we have an answer for it. Uh, well, we then, there may not be we, an I mean, answer, have, but I think it's versions, a very important thing. But I think it's the issue. Of answers, but if I understand you correctly, you are trying to say, at which point does the chemistry stop and something else is added to it? I don't know if anybody can tell you at which point chemistry stops and something is added to it, unless you b bring in belief. Mm -hmm. could, I, could I actually, well, I, I do think there's a, there's a non-theological answer that I'm kind of sympathetic with um, that comes out of the Schopenhauer kind of tradition, which sees the, the, the meaning of sublime experience as a kind of revelation of freedom, um, so that uh, which is a pretty mysterious thing, you know, that we are beings who, who are natural beings, but we also seem to have free will and um, operate on a what, what some philosophers call a space of reasons that is not um, just reducible to a kind of a causal story. Mm -hmm. And for for Kant and Schopenhauer, the the experience of the sublime was the way we could um, have a felt recognition of our freedom. When I okay. uh, Thank you. come to realize... A couple sir. more questions. Oh, okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, when I come to realize that everything in the external world, however large or distant, is nonetheless finite, uh, the discovery of the very concept of infinitude that I find in myself uh, is the signal in, this, in the sublime experience in this tradition of freedom because freedom is nothing other than the escape from limits. And if uh, the experience of the external discloses in me the escape from those very limits, the power to escape from those very limits, that in that tradition, that's another way to put it, is the meaning of the sublime. Okay, two more questions and then we'll stop. First, I guess I want to say I'm very sorry that Professor Axel couldn't make it because this question was originally meant for him, but uh, it's about a distinction. So I study mathematics, and it's not clear to me that I've ever experienced the sublime in what I do, but it's, all, it's been clear to me that I've certainly experienced wonder, right? And our discussion of wonder, at least my impression of it, is it's it's something that's, it's got, wonder arouses a kind of productive curiosity about the world. And it sort of uh, fosters curiosity in science. And my question, I guess, is there a distinction between wonder and the sublime? Um, and is, if there is, um, is the sensation of the sublime, is that, well, certainly it seems to be only encountered in the arts, in literature, in, um, in music. 
And what would that look like in a sort of a more scientific mode? Well, you know, for me, wonder is, uh, obviously they're close, because the experience of awe can be applied to wonder or the sublime, right? So, that, so there's our, our stretching of language again. But if I were going to try to distinguish wonder from the sublime, I would say wonder makes us, it, 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 there is a certain amount of awe involved with it, but it makes, us want to, it makes us want to know more and more about something, right? This is wonderful. I want more intimacy with it. I want you know, to really plunge into it now. Now, uh, wonder um, peaks us and, and gets us engaged. The sublime knocks us off our feet right, and, and makes us feel that any amount of knowledge would be inadequate to what we've just experienced. Last question. Thank you. Uh, to what extent do you think context um, is important, especially in light of your comment that, or I believe it was your comment, that art, um, you know, the analysis in the 20th century shifted away from a formal, you know, aesthetics or understanding, because many people, um, who appreciate modern art, appreciate it with an understanding of the need for context, mm -hmm. such that um, the Matisse exhibition, you don't necessarily have to know his place in history or his place um, in art, what it represents, but the actual apprehension of it, many people speak about it being joyful and, mm -hmm. and, and creating possibly a sublimity or a sense of, of great happiness. Um, with music, on the other hand, to what extent can um, do you need a, a formal knowledge? Of, for example, I, I can't really access um, Schoenberg. I don't have enough knowledge to, to appreciate him and, and on a purely, would you call it, aesthetic level. It, it's not satisfying to me, and I know it's from a lack of knowledge, um, whereas um, Sacre de Printemps is, is uh, it's accessible to me for whatever reason. It's not in that tone. I don't think it's the same extent of... Um, of um, what would you call it? Um, complexity, if you will. If you could just address that. Well, that's a different language. The difference between Schoenberg and Stravinsky, some people will still find the Stravinsky very difficult. And in principle, I, don't, I think great art, um, you can't like everything, and that uh, what is great will hit you without you needing to know anything about the ingredients of the meal. Exactly. Um, the first part of what you were talking about interests me a great deal. If you you, you talked very early in the day about Mahler's Ninth Symphony. The shared experience, the context of the shared experience is a, a very interesting one to me. If you go back home and look on YouTube, you will find a performance of the Ninth Mahler Symphony uh, by the Lucerne Festival Orchestra with Claudio Abado conducting. And the performance is so extraordinary, I would suggest leads the whole hall of 2,000 people to about 12, 15 minutes of total silence at the end, where that shared experience and context has led to a sublime experience for all those people that you can also get from just watching and participating. And, I, and for me, that's one of the great uh, sort of truths of what music can do and the co in, in context. Uh, just a, a, a quick point about something you said, uh, and, and 
this lady will correct us because she probably has her own views of it. Uh, I would say that there is actually a fairly important difference between aesthetic appreciation and formal analysis. I would not say that formal analysis went into eclipse in thinking about the art of the 20th century. Whereas what did tend to go into eclipse, into eclipse or underground as one might say, was the willingness to say, uh, oh, that's beautiful, or that's sublime, or it's ugly, or it's grotesque, or any of the other aesthetic categories that one might point to. Uh, formal analysis on the other side, on the other hand, is something that I think has flourished in the, in the 20th century. So maybe a distinction is needed there. But I, that's a little, that's pedantic, because it, we all understood what you were saying, and it was very interesting. <laughs> Uh, it was the last question, but I let you ask your question, but make it briefly. Uh, I'm a little sorry that you uh, conflated sublime with aesthetics and beauty, because I think they're very, very different issues, and you can often appreciate aesthetics and beauty in, in just about any field that you want to talk, talk about and not have sublime experiences with any of them. And I think the sublimity is something that you can, it's almost like a pointillistic response to something. And you can, you know, you mentioned Glenn Gould and you can conjure up probably from anyone here who, who knows him, how to get a sublime experience out of looking into his eyes on film, let alone the Goldberg variations or one one um, chord in Tristan, or one chord in the second string quartet of Schoenberg, or a sound of UC Bierling, you know, what, what these things do, and you could pick anything. You could talk about birds, or flowers, or mountains, and have these kind of experiences without having to say they have anything to do with aesthetics. You can, you can have associative experiences even from ideas. If you want to talk about someone's um, idea, let's say, of Schoenberg or Walter Benjamin, and then you can conjure up a whole class of ideas associated with what they're talking about and have an, a sublime experience. It's an abstraction. It's it's a way of going into the universe, of having an infinite opening, you know, looking at one color out of a Rothko painting or one, one um, gestural element in an abstract painting or palestrina, I mean, or, or early blues or early jazz or anything, you know, it, the sound of a horse, you know, neighing. It, it has... There's something obviously physiological, there's a strong chemical component, a physiological component, but there's an associative component that, as you say, can go from culture to culture to culture. You could share it with almost anyone who knows nothing about what we're talking about, and they will know the meaning of sublime or the meaning of numinous, you know, which is a word that wasn't used, or so many other things that the flowing into eternity. It's not a question, but I just felt listening to so many of these things that, that there is a broad category. And someone said, which I thought was fascinating, that no, that can you share the sublime? If someone says something, does someone else 
it's like, like the old joke, well, it's not the joke that's funny, it's the way you tell it. You know, it's the number, the way you say the number of that joke. And it's the same thing if you talk about the, the pointillism of an event that conjures a sublime experience or that opens it, can you then share that with other people? Thank you. Thank you. And we have one more, we have one more question. Last you, question, and brief, please. Yes, of course, and this, and this is a question, and by its nature it will be brief. Um, but I'd appreciate around, to ask it around the panel, because it's striking for me that something that's central to the discourse of 18th century Jewish mystics about the sublime as an opening into uno mystica, into, into the experience of, of, of oneness and the, the move across the divide between human self and, and, and divinity, is, is, is the emotional tone that goes along with that and, that and that actually can be seen as the entrance way into that is humility. And while you've touched on, the, you've touched on sort of the other side, which is almost the secularization of the translation into divinity in terms of freedom, but while on this side of the divide, the feeling that of sublimity uh, that goes along with, with the feeling of the, sub, of, the, of the encounter with the experience of the sublime of humility has been missing entirely from this discourse. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious about that. So I, I'd appreciate going around the panel and addressing that in some way. Well, Hegel really confines the expression of the sublime in history to, Hebrew, to the iconoclasm of Hebrew scriptures. And the reason he does that is he feels that the sense of the infinite is directly connected to a mistrust of images. In other words, that images always take, bring with them an investment in finitude. And the humility uh, of, our, uh, of, of our deference to the infinite is something that can only enter into the picture sorry, wrong expression, can only enter into consideration for Hegel in the form of iconoclasm. Thank you. Okay, we will stop here.